And you guys may be seated. And for those of you who utilize our children's ministry, we run that through first grade. You're more than welcome to take your children back there now. But for those of you whose children stay in the service, just by way of reminder, they're most welcome here. Um, and, uh, you know, if they, if they get a little fussy and you need to take them out for a minute and bring them back in, that is absolutely fine. And so we want you to know that they are welcome to be in the service with us and just... Um, a, a little bit of uh, housekeeping, if you will. I don't know what else to call it, but the um, uh, we're gonna. I'm gonna dismiss parents after the sermon to go and get their children. Just parents, okay, and make sure you have the corresponding tag to be able to get your children because we're gonna do a baptism um, at the end of our service this morning that I am excited about, and uh, I sent an email out uh, churchwide just about. Uh, Megan uh, coming to uh, receive a Trinitarian baptism um, based on God in Christ saving her, which is uh, deeply encouraging and exciting. For those of you who didn't get the email and you want to uh, read of her testimony, um, it is on a piece of paper out in the lot. You can grab a copy on your way out this morning. And so, but I'll speak a little bit more about that in just a moment. But if you have um, your Bibles, I'm going to forego reading from our confession. Uh, this morning and just jump straight to Mark chapter 10 and we'll pick back up with the London Confession of Faith next Sunday, Lord willing. But we're going to look at Mark chapter 10 verses 32 through 45 and I decided uh, last night to split this sermon into two parts. So uh, your takeaways include what we're going to look at next week, so you, uh, you, you know what to expect coming up. And so I'm going to focus on the first takeaway. Uh, of course, I say you'll have the, the takeaways next week. We may have even more takeaways when we uh, get to it. We'll see what happens. But, um, but I want us to focus on and think through uh, this passage and not rush through it. Uh, there's a lot to see here, and, uh, and, and really... Uh, I, the beginning part of this passage was especially striking to me, and so I want it to stick out to us. But allow me to read it, starting with verse 32. Again, we'll spend two weeks here. I'm going to read down to verse 45. The Word of the Lord says this, Now, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. <clears throat> Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, right, which we know is a messianic title, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Verse 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Then they said, to him, grant us that we may sit one at your right hand and the other at your left hand in glory, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, 
we are able. Think of the audacity of that answer for a moment, right? So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I'm baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and to sit on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who were considered rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you again for allowing us to open your word and to to feast on it together as your church, God. And Lord, we confess that to feast on your word is to feast on Christ, who your word testifies about. So help us, God, to see Christ more clearly. Lord, we pray that you would continue to shape our worship of you, Father, Son, Spirit, according to your word, God, that you would build us up in the faith, God, that you would, in a few minutes when we observe Megan's baptism, Lord, that you would help to remind us through that of our union with Christ, God, help us to recall our own baptisms, Lord, help those who may not know you to be provoked toward confessing Christ as Lord, and Lord, the same as when we come to the table in a few moments, God, that we may be reminded of the sufficiency of Christ Jesus in saving us, in persevering us, Lord, and seeing us home. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I used another passage of Scripture to sum up this passage of Scripture, it would be a verse from the sermon that the, uh, the Apostle Paul gave to the Hebraic church uh, and, and in the book of Hebrews after speaking about the superiority of Jesus, his supremacy over everything, and after talking about this great cloud of witnesses right, we see in chapter 11 that testified to the supremacy of Jesus over all things, you know, like a flashing arrow for us. The Apostle Paul, he says this to the Hebrew Christians. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and I love this phrase, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, which we could get into how you know, the finished work of Christ and his, uh, the eternal sufficiency of Jesus as our sacrifice, as our high priest, as, as our prophet, priest, and king is evidenced not just in his resurrection, but in his ascension to the right hand of the Father where he is seated and ruling and reigning now. But I love that phrase here, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Joy. Right? We... We see that this morning evidenced 
in our text. We see evidence of joy, joy in doing the will of the Father, the joy of redeeming a people to himself. And that, that's what I want us to spend time just considering or marinating in, if you will, this morning. Our text opens up with what can only be described as a brisk walk toward Jerusalem. Okay, I, And I don't really know how brisk of a walk it was, but we know for certain that Jesus didn't drag his feet. Right? He, he didn't drag his feet. John Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he documented for us that Jesus went before the disciples. We see that in verse 32. In other words, he was ahead of them. He was in front of the disciples. He also notes for us that the disciples, and I think this relates particularly to the 12, right, the, the apostles, that they were amazed at this and that they were also afraid as they followed Jesus. Now, why is this the case? Well, think about it. It's because they knew what waited for Jesus up at Jerusalem. Right? He, he had told them twice already that he, the Son of Man, again, this, this messianic term, right? but he, the Son of Man, was to suffer many things and that he was to die and that he was to rise again on the third day, although I, I'm not certain of how the, his prediction or his prophecy about the, about the resurrection, how that would have struck the disciples or the apostles at that time. But, but Jesus, he, he's talked about this already, and he says that this is all to take place in Jerusalem. Now, we've noted along the way that while the disciples understood those facts, meaning that they understood that Jesus was telling them that he was going to suffer and die, what they didn't understand is the spiritual significance of it. They didn't understand how it would advance God's kingdom. They didn't understand how Jesus doing that would rescue God's people. And frankly, as we've seen, they had their own ideas, right? What they thought were better ideas about how Jesus should go about accomplishing his messianic mission. But, but they understood the basic facts, okay, that, that, that Jesus predicted that he would suffer and die. And, and again, they knew that this was to happen in Jerusalem. And our text this morning says that they're on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus, right, this Jesus who is to suffer and die, he's speed walking. He's speed walking. He's not deterred. Right? He's not manipulated and knocked off course by the fears and the anxieties of those that were close to him. Right? There's no indication in our text that he takes the long way around. Right? He walks ahead of everyone on his way to Jerusalem. And again, why? We need to hear it, not just hear it, we need to internalize it and be comforted by it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Joy. Right? That, that's something that as God's people we should revel in, isn't it? Because it's everything for us. And I love that we see Christ not going to the cross reluctantly. He doesn't go to the cross reluctantly, but he speed walks 
in that direction, speed walking in the direction of glorifying the Father and saving the lost, and not in some light, trivial way, right? We know the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? We know that he was to face the wrath of God, but Christ was not deter. He was eager to accomplish the will of his Father, and in accomplishing the will of his Father, it led to the redemption of his people. Some scholars believe that Mark and telling us how Jesus approached Jerusalem is connecting the prophecy of of Isaiah in in chapter 50, verse 7, and and demonstrating that Jesus is the, the ultimate fulfillment of it. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7 says this, For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed set my face like a flint. We certainly know that Jesus' face was firm toward Jerusalem, firm toward accomplishing His messianic mission, toward accomplishing, again, the will of the Father to redeem a people to Himself. And the disciples were amazed by this, amazed that Jesus would not be deterred, and we should be amazed and humbled and grateful for that because apart from Christ's willingness, his eagerness, his refusal to be sidelined or distracted or to have his messianic mission interrupted, apart from Christ accomplishing the will of the Father, none of us would be saved. We should sleep in on Sundays, right? What we're doing is nothing more than some empty ritualistic practice if what we're looking at here didn't happen. Jesus, He wouldn't fail as the first Adam failed. He set His face like a flint. And because we have the completed canon of Scripture, we can read this passage and we can know He did go to Jerusalem. He did suffer many things. He did die on the cross. He did receive the wrath of God for our sins. He did take those sins, as you've heard me say many times, into the empty tomb. And he did leave those sins in the empty tomb when he bodily and eternally resurrected from it, signifying that we, as God's people, were eternally made right with him. That's glorious, isn't it? Again, that's everything. Now, I've mentioned this already, but we also see in our text that the, the disciples were afraid, right? So they were amazed at Jesus walking ahead toward Jerusalem, knowing what it was that he would face. But they were also afraid. And, and again, their fear was certainly driven by what they knew, right? They, they knew that Jesus was going to face, from their vantage point, certain doom if he was to go to Jerusalem. And while we do see this grand desertion after Jesus' arrest, I do think it's important for us to see that the disciples were still following Jesus at this point, despite their being, them being afraid. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that next week. Right? They were afraid of what he was to face, of course, but perhaps they were also afraid of what they were going to face for being associated with him. Right? He has been saying these religious leaders that we've been in conflict with along the way, yeah, they're going to be the ones that lead the charge as it relates to this messianic mission he's been talking about. 
right? And these religious leaders certainly would have run into especially the twelve at this time and be somewhat familiar. So there's no reason for us to think they weren't also afraid for their own lives in their following of Jesus, yet they followed him up to Jerusalem. And instead of walking up to Jerusalem in silence, we see Jesus, he, he teaches the twelve, right? We see him begin to teach them. He takes them aside from the, the rest of this crowd that is following him, it seems, and, and he mentions the unmentionable, right? He, he begins to give, he begins to articulate what is on everyone, everyone's heart. He, he, he doesn't, he, 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 um, he gives voice to the very thing that they were afraid of, right? He talks about this messianic work that he was sent by the Father to do, and he does so for the third and final time, right? We saw him do it for the first time in the Gospel of Mark back in chapter 8. We saw it in verses 31 to 33, right? And, and, and what followed from that was Peter trying to rebuke Christ for the way in which he framed his messianic work. We saw back in chapter 9, verses 31 to 32, Jesus talk about it again, and the disciples are even afraid to just ask follow-up questions about it. And then here we are, Mark chapter 10, verses 33 to 34. And, and this is the most detailed of the three accounts. Right? First, Jesus, he acknowledges their walking toward Jerusalem and how after they arrive, he, the, 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 the Son of Man, will be betrayed, which is better translated as, as delivered or handed over. It gives us this idea of this preordained plan of God, that he's accomplishing the will of the Father and that Jesus is not at the uh, will uh, or at the mercy of the fickleness of man. Right? But he's be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, right? These are these religious leaders, and that they're going to be the ones that lead the charge that, end up, that uh, results in him being condemned to his death, right? He tells them he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles, right? We, we confess that every week when we recite the Apostles' Creed together and we mention Pontius Pilate, right? He says that he's going to be mocked and he's going to be whipped or flogged. We know that happened under Pilate. We'll see that in Mark chapter 15, verse 15. And he was spit on and he would finally be killed. And again, you and I know, because of the completed canon of Scripture, that that isn't where it ended, right? That's not the conclusion of his work, but that he did resurrect just as he said he was going to do. Now, one can predict these things, one can say these things, but for them to actually take place is another thing entirely, isn't it? Now, listen to Paul's testimony about it. Uh, he writes it to, to the church of Corinth. This is such a, uh, to me, a faith-strengthening um, section of Scripture. He, he says in, in chapter 15, starting with verse 3, <coughs> he says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our what? Our sins, right? He didn't just die, right? Anybody can just die, but He died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that he rose again, and the, uh, uh, rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then get this, there, was an eyewitness, there were eyewitness accounts, right? And he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over 500 brothers at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, meaning at the time Paul was writing that, they were 
still alive. Go verify what I'm saying with the eyewitnesses. He says, some have died, some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, after that he was seen by James, then by all of the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time, right? Paul himself seeing the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, right? But Paul here, writing to the church of Corinth, he declares at great cost to himself that Jesus accomplished exactly what he said he would do and that it was for our sins, right? Not just the sins of Corinth, but for our sins, sitting here 2,000 plus years later, right? So, if you're a sinner this morning, and kids, just so you know, we're all sinners, right? But here's the thing. This is good news for you, right? If you're a sinner this morning, you should look at a passage like this, and you should say, praise God I'm a sinner because Christ died for my sins, right? The way that we can think about it, right? We're not left to our own devices, right? We're not left in our sins. If we were left in our sins, we of all people, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us as well, Paul tells us as well, we of all people should be pitied, right? This is a sad state of things if we have sin and no Savior, but we have a Savior, right? I love Augustine says, um, you know, and, and, and this is, in, in some ways, it, it's a, it, uh, it's a shocking thing to hear, but he, he looks when he surveys Genesis 1 and 3, Augustine said of the fall, and some of you will be familiar with this, he said, fortunate fall that has gained for us so great a redeemer. Good news for sinners. His resurrection, his eternal bodily resurrection had eyewitnesses. And we know, according to one of Paul's other letters in Romans, that the resurrection of Jesus is proof that we're justified, that what he did really did make us right with God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And in his enduring of the cross, he accomplished exactly what he said he was going to do. Now, Somewhere along the way, James and John, they ask a question. Okay, Matthew's account of this same story, historical account, says that their mom spoke on their behalf too. If you can imagine your mom going to you, a grown man, or going to Jesus on behalf of your grown men, sons, and saying, I want my sons to be honored next to you. Um, I would have loved to have seen that play out. Did that embarrass James and John? I don't know if that embarrassed James and John or not, but we have Mark's account saying it's seemingly they were all like-minded. Um, so mom and her two precious boys, um, <clears throat> she wanted them on the right and the left-hand side of Jesus. And, uh, and, and, and if you didn't know, right, Jesus had uh, an inner circle of sorts, some, even within the 12 you know, apostles we see. Who, who, who's the three close friends? Yeah, Peter, James, and John, right? And um, that's who was present, for instance, at the Transfiguration, right? Now, Peter is silent in this conversation, and I think it's because there were only two remaining chairs and he got voted off the island. Um, but James and John, according to Mark, they asked Jesus a question, and, and before they ask him a question, they preface it with, we want you to do for us whatever, we're, whatever we ask, Right? And, and 
you know, it seems that they know to some degree the absurdity of what it is that they're about to ask. And by the way, if somebody approaches you and says that they want to make a request of you, but that you have to agree to it before they make the request, don't do that. Um, but Jesus, he, he doesn't take the bait, right? He, he tells them essentially to, to spit it out. And their request is that one of them, uh, was go- they wanted one of them to sit at the right hand, one of them to sit at the left hand of Jesus in his glory. Now, this is interesting because the very nature of this question shows us that there's no doubt in the mind of the apostles, the, the twelve, that Jesus really is the Christ, right? And by Christ, again, kids, we mean Messiah, right? That he's the one that would come to save us from our sins, right? Peter's confession at this point, it still rings true. You are the Christ, Mark chapter 8, verse 29, right? So, James and John, they know that Jesus will sit in the center seat, which is the highest place of honor, right? What they ask for is the next highest place of honor. Now, Jesus responds to them by telling them that they have no idea what they're asking for, and he redirects them to his messianic mission by using the imagery of the cup and of baptism, which in God's graciousness is just so relevant to where we are this morning with doing both the baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? Now, a cup in the Bible was sometimes associated with blessing and prosperity, but it could also be used to symbolize God's judgment. Just give you a couple of Old Testament passages of Scripture to fill this out for us, okay? The first Old Testament passage of Scripture being Psalm chapter 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, And the wine is red, it's fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink it down. Or Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You've drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Or Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 25, verses 15 to 16. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I'll send among them. Think about how this relates to the baptism Jesus is speaking of too. That word baptizo, it means immersed in water or to be dipped in water. Now, we see how Scripture can use the cup as a symbol of God's wrath, but what of baptism? We could point to a passage like in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22, and I'll encur- I'd encourage you to go read that, but you see how Peter described the flood as a type of baptism. Right? Baptism as judgment in this great global flood in which the wrath of God was displayed. Yet, at the same time, God's elect, Noah and his family, were preserved. They were preserved. Now, this can give us a bit more clarity on what Jesus had in mind as he speaks of this cup and of baptism. He was signifying that his sufferings his being crucified, right, is, is, is him being immersed, right, like a baptism in the wrath of God, right? Jesus was talking about 
the, the cup of God's wrath that he had to drink. Yet get this, the judgment that Jesus experienced for our sins was at the same time our salvation, right? Jesus received wrath. We have been preserved, right? Jesus drank the cup of wrath. We drink the cup of reconciliation, Jesus was baptized in the judgment of God. We are baptized into fellowship with God and one another. That's a glorious thing to contemplate, isn't it? Now, James and John don't fully, they didn't fully understand it, right? They said that they were able to do that which Jesus came to do, and of course we know that that's not the case. However, they would suffer. Right? That's why Jesus responds to them by saying, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I'm, I am baptized with, you'll be baptized, verse 39. But listen, not in the salvific sense, not in the salvific sense. What Jesus is saying is that they're going to suffer because of their commitment to him, because of their declaring of this message of Christ alone being the one worthy to drink the cup of God's wrath. They would experience persecution. They would have trouble because of their preaching of the gospel. And we know, again, in fact, that they did experience this. Acts 12, for instance, teaches us that James was executed by Herod. In fact, James was the first apostle to be martyred. Right? John, as far as we know, wasn't martyred, but he was persecuted immensely, and he ended up living in exile in, on an island called Patmos. So they did drink a cup of suffering. They were baptized into affliction, but what they didn't experience is the wrath of God for their sins. What they didn't do is bear the wrath of God for the sins of others. Jesus did that exclusively. He was the only one that was able to do that. That's why the cup of God's wrath couldn't pass from him to another. Right? That's why Augustine says of this passage that Jesus alone canceled both the penalty, mean God, meaning God's righteous judgment for our sin, and the sin, meaning the sin of Adam and our actual transgressions. Right? After Jesus walks through what his suffering would entail, and after he points James and John toward their suffering for his sake, we see him highlight the Father's prerogative in honoring or esteeming others. In other words, Jesus says, no, you can't sit at my right hand and at my left hand. He says, to do so is not mine to give, but it's for those who, for whom it has been prepared. Right? We've seen Jesus, his submission of the will of the Father, see the preordained plan of the Father. Right? God's kingdom, God's will, it's not arbitrary. It's not at the, the, it's not at the whim of just any request. Right? There are those who point to a passage like Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, which says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be open. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. Right? There's people that take a passage like that, and they interpret it as some blank check from God. Right? Or they believe that God answers to us finite people in some sort of way. And it's clear from our passage of Scripture this morning that that's not the case. It's clear from Scripture's overarching narrative that it's not the case, right? We pray and we request according to God's will. We pray and we make requests open-handedly. James and John, they weren't going to trap Jesus into granting them something just because they wanted it really bad, right? Jesus Jesus shows us this much by not taking the bait and by showing God's 
uh, will superseding everyone else's will, right? And his ordaining of that, it comes to pass. Now, again, there, there's a lot to see in our text, and there's a lot more that we're going to re- revisit next week. But I want to give us just the first takeaway <coughs> that's in your notes, and it's this, in case it's not clear already. Jesus is the only one who could drink the cup of the Father's righteous wrath for our sin. Right? That, that should be evident based on the ground that we've covered. Right? It's something that every Christian confesses, but it's critical. It's critical that we, we grasp this, experientially grasp this, not just intellectually grasp it, right? It, and it's something that we all confess, but how often do we practically usurp Christ's rightful place, right? Christ alone took God's wrath for our sins. Christ alone did everything necessary for our salvation. Our salvation, beginning, middle, end, is not contingent upon us, It's contingent upon Christ. And he said from the cross, it's what? It's finished. It's finished, right? He drank the cup. He was baptized in judgment. And now those who find refuge in him, those who know themselves to be sinners, the worst of sinners included, can reap the benefits of what Christ alone has done. And we have to, as a church family, never get past this. We're so forgetful of this, right? We never should never grow numb to this. And the anxiety that we often feel this side of eternity is evidence to us of those times that we're trusting in something or someone other than our Savior who alone did everything necessary for our salvation. It's no coincidence, as I said a moment ago, that the cup of the Lord's Supper and baptism, both of which we're doing this morning, preach to us the sufficient work of Jesus in his acquiring forgiveness for us in our union with him. One of the reasons these sacraments or ordinances are to be regular practices in the church, particularly the Lord's Supper, is because of how forgetful we are. We have to remember that Jesus was, Jesus is the only one qualified to accomplish all that is necessary for our salvation. And what we do in light of that, what we do in response to that, is rest and trust in Him alone. It's good news that seems too good to be true, but it's not too good to be true. So I'm thankful this morning that we're going to do both the Lord's Supper and baptism. And as we do these two ordinances, these two sacraments that are commended by our Lord, remember what they preach to us. They preach Christ. Christ is at the center of our sacraments, not human merit, not human decision. Christ and his commitment to save a people to himself. Only Christ was worthy enough to drink the cup of God's wrath for the sins of his people. As we take the Lord's Supper, remember this. Only Christ was able to be baptized into the judgment of God and in so doing acquire salvation for you and for me. And so we, as we observe baptism this morning, remember this and remember that Christ did not flinch when he faced this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you 
for our great Savior, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Help us to rest in him. God, I pray for Megan, Lord, as we get ready to give her a Trinitarian baptism, Lord, that you would spiritually strengthen her, encourage her, Lord, as she grows in the gospel of grace along with her, her husband, Patrick, God. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in their lives. And God, I pray that as we observe these two sacraments together as a church family, that you will remind us that we belong to you and that we're collectively Christ's body, Christ's bride. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.